Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the front three. It's Monday evening, the day after the World Cup wrapped up here alongside Chris Hennich. Chris, how you doing? I'm not bad, thanks. How are you? Good. Did you enjoy the World Cup final? France 4, Croatia 2. It finished a thoroughly entertaining game. The most goals in a World Cup final, I believe, since 1966. Who won it that year? Oh. Uh, we don't we don't like to talk about omens from 1966, but um, yeah, it was it was an entertaining game, right? It was full of incident. It was uh, it was fun. Yeah, it, it, in that regard, you could argue it encapsulated a lot of the major themes of the tournament um, in one 90 minute stretch, which is is pretty difficult to do. So fair play to them. Mm, let's dig through some of the specifics of the game first. Obviously, in that first period, it felt like Croatia were the team on top in those opening stages. They were passing around the ball nicely. They were pulling France apart a little bit, creating chances. But yet, Antoine Griezmann dives. They got a free kick, and all of a sudden, the ball's in the back of the net from Mario Mandzukic own goal it felt pretty harsh on Croatia in, in those opening stages it did I, th- I think Griezmann was anticipating contact in that moment and it just didn't come um, and and to that end I think Croatia had f- fairly decent share to feel a bit aggrieved based on did you blame, both the, the, did you blame the Griezmann for that though going down um, I, I kind of I feel like he's justified in I know technically you can say he's a dive but I feel like he's justified in, in doing what he needs to do and you know do the ends justify the means then? They scored. Well, that's the thing. It's whether you level the responsibility of the referee for not spotting it or Griezmann for, for doing it. Um, I, yeah, I, I think you could get mired in that one until until the cows come home, until 2022 even. Um, <laughs> but I think you I think you were right in, in what you said, that Croatia did dominate the ball from the early periods. In fact, I sent a screenshot to Lawrence of um, the stat zone app with just the caption, lol, because if you looked at the completed passes, I think the first five, six players, and this was true actually even after the 90 minutes, the first five or six players were all Croatian. Paul Pogba was top, I think, with 30 passes completed during the, the entire game. So, yeah, fr- fr- France stayed, I would say, true to their habit of the tournament, which is, you know, we don't need the ball, really. We, we're quite happy for you to have it, and then and we'll pick holes from, from where you leave them. Mm. Obviously, then they did get that equaliser, a well-worked goal, once again from a set-piece. Perisic with the equaliser, it felt like maybe they could come back into it. From there, they were the team on top. But then another controversial decision from the referee, giving the penalty against Perisic, the goal scorer. Um, What did you make of that one? Obviously, it went to VAR. I was looking up the rules of handball ethics. I was trying to to understand why the referee had given it. It has to be deliberate. The, the laws of the game, I've looked into this, I've done my reset, it has to be deliberate, they have to take into account you know, the, the, the motion of the hand, whether it's going towards the ball, etc. It felt harsh, I thought, on Perisic to, to give that as a deliberate handball. Where, where did you stand on it? Yeah, I th- I th- I'm, I'm inclined to agree with those who think it was a harsh penalty. Um, and I think, again, it goes back to the frailties of AR, which are, it produces a moment without context. Um, it's it's a little bit like Vine, um, <laughs> that six-second medium that is sadly no longer with us. It, really? it it doesn't give you the whole picture. Um, 
Because if you even watched what the referee was saying, it was essentially just the moment where it hits Perisic's hand back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And I know some people said the fact that he didn't make a conclusive decision instantly almost backs up the notion that it can't be a clear penalty because you had to look at it seven, eight times before you could even come to a decision yourself. And I think that's the problem. And, and for me, this is almost where the the situation with VAR descends into. For me, I really think it's only going to be most beneficial in offside calls where there is a black and a white. You know, you can't be half pregnant. You can't be half offside. You're either are or you aren't offside. Whereas with a penalty, it's in it's it's down to interpretation and to, to stretch the legal analogy a bit more, you can give someone more and more information, but that doesn't necessarily give them more and more clarity towards the decision that they have to make. I, I agree with you broadly speaking. I think you're right in that offside is the only aspect which is black and white, but I do think that VAR has improved the World Cup. I, I, I found it very enjoyable, the whole process and when you know you have that drama of the VAR decisions. I loved it. I loved it as an element, a new element brought into the game. I think there is still the, the controversy. People seem to, I don't know if people misunderstand it, but they think it should eradicate any wrong decisions where it, it does give the referee, as you say, more information, another chance to view it. But it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to get subjective decision right. They're always open to interpretation still. But I do like that that aspect of it, whether the referee is going to give it, whether he's not. I can see why he's given it, but I also feel like it was harsh on Croatia. But Griezmann in the end puts it away. 2-1 again to France. They're back in front. And it felt from there like like Croatia had the win taken out of their sails somewhat. In that second half, two quick-fire goals seemed to kill the game. Pogba first. Perhaps he was a little bit fortunate to sort of get that rebound. It was a nicely worked move, but it fell perfectly for him when his first shot was blocked to place it into that that bottom left-hand corner, and then Mbappe stepping up, doing what we knew he was going to do, uh, take this final, take the spotlight, scoring that fourth goal, seemed to put it to bed there. And in the end, it felt like, you know, uh, perhaps added a little more gloss to it, perhaps added a little bit more of a convincing veneer to the scoreline, because to me, Chris, France didn't play amazingly well. And I think it is kind of the story of France in this tournament that they haven't really needed to get out of first gear. No, they haven't. They haven't needed to dominate. I think I think that's the, the key thing is here, and I wrote about this in, in a column for, for Bet Bull just the other day, that you look at least recently, um, because I don't have a photographic memory, 2014, 2010, both the winners had like a moment of pure, unadulterated domination. So with Germany, it was the 7-1 of Brazil, with Spain, you could argue it was just the possession throughout the tournament, the fact they constantly had the ball. Um, whereas with France, you haven't really seen that. They've they've been the ultimate counterpuncher, which, in fairness, I think is a theme that's sort of developed in um, the club game a little bit as well. This idea that it, it's something that, that Jurgen Klopp had said on Monday Night Football, uh, I think it was a few years ago now, actually, when he first sort of came to, to England, that the counter-press itself, gig-impressing as we know it, is better than any number 10 in terms of creating opportunity or finding a pass because it produces space, which is something that really a, a midfielder with the ball at his feet necessarily can't do. He can find it, but he can't produce it in the same way. So I think for that aspect of it, I think France, they almost feel disappointing. And that might sound really harsh criticism to level, but I think it's just because we look at the talent they have. We look at Pogba, we look at Kante, we look at Mbappe, the names that can go on and on. And there's just this notion that, and this is true of Pogba actually at club level as well, is that Paul Pogba cost 90 million, has the video with Storms, he has this big sort of aura around him. So we just presume that he should be like this Space Jam character who should be dominating the World Cup final, should not, as I sit here and look at the numbers now, have 30 completed passes and Rakitic, Rajalko, Lovren, Vida. Modric and Brozovic. In fact, Brozovic had 84 completed passes, so more than double. That that that's when I think sometimes we can get a little bit too invested in the stats and all this kind of you know the numbers is is everything. Mm. But then also I think you know I, was, I could almost hear Lawrence in my head saying perception is reality. In so much <laughs> as they didn't dominate the ball, so they can they be considered great champions? But they were just super effective. I think we talked about it just before we came on. This is where I think the Euros will be so important for them because when they won it in 98 they kicked on massively 
and and they were much better in Euro 2000. So if it gets to Euro 20 and they are this behemoth of a team that just blitz everyone that they face, then we can say, okay, well, maybe this was the the formulative stage. This was the early years of the French national team under Deschamps. I think it is a a really interesting discussion because I think everyone would agree it's been one of, if not the most entertaining World Cups ever, certainly in our lifetimes. You know, the amount of, of... of drama, the goals, the the entertainment on offer has been incredible. We've all we've all loved it, but it does feel like it's lacking, as you say, a dominant performance from a team, a team who played so well and are so strong that you can only sit back and admire how complete they are. And I think, as you say, perhaps with Germany in 2014, we saw that against Brazil, the way they blew them away, a result no one's ever going to forget. But perhaps, you know, although I'm lamenting that, it does just speak to a trend in football, which, as you say, is tactical. It is The game has moved on, and we don't necessarily have dominant teams in the international game, in the club game either, who are who are imperious. That's just where the, what, the way the game is moving, in a sense. Is, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, look at, look at the Champions League as, as, as a good example of that. Real Madrid... We were talking about their legacy. I remember reading a Jonathan Wilson piece about what will be Real Madrid's legacy if they win the Champions League. Um, I think more than ever, we analyse history before the inks even finish drying. And and that in itself can be, I don't know, it can almost remove the fun from the moment a bit and, and almost the achievement because, you know, you, you look at the Champions League final, which in fairness, Real Madrid did dominate possession. But in the build-up to that, they had certainly not looked the most convincing. They hadn't always come out of games. I think the Bayern Munich tie was probably the best um, illustration of that, where they were outshot across the two legs, but still came through, you would argue, fairly comfortably. Yeah, I'm kind of, in a weird way, almost hungry to see a team who is completely dominant and can... You could argue that City, to be fair. You could argue that's Man City in the Premier League. I think the last time we saw that in club football was Barcelona, where they dominated Europe, they dominated the domestic league. Yes, we've just seen Real Madrid achieve what seemed the impossible, not just to win two back-to-back Champions League, but to win three in a row. Um, they also did win the double in 2016-17. But you know, this year, winning that Champions League, losing the title to, a, I think, let's be honest, a poor Barcelona side... I'm kind of hungry to see a team who who dominates both their domestic and European competitions. Manchester City, we saw fall short to Liverpool and uh, pretty comprehensively um, to Jurgen Klopp's side in, in European competition. It's kind of, I just wonder if that is a trend of the game that we're speaking about the World Cup, you know, being incredibly entertaining but lacking a dominant side. I think that's something we haven't had in the Premier League for a number of years as well. You know, that's the, the, the kind of the exchange almost, that's a sacrifice that as entertaining as all these games are, as even as some of the teams are becoming, we are sort of losing that that sense of an imperious team who you, you just, as I say, you sit back at a mile and just go, wow, okay, these guys almost can't be beaten. And it just, it seems to be a trend. As I say, we haven't seen that in the club games since Pep Guardiola's Barcelona side. We haven't seen that in international football since Spain won three major international tournaments back to back. It just seems, you know, those those days may be over. But can we do, do we criticise France then for for what they're not instead of what they are? It does feel to me like yes, Didier Deschamps, you know, is the third man ever to win the the World Cup as a captain and then a manager. I think is an incredible achievement. But at the same time, I do feel he should and could have done more with this France team, and he could have elevated them to another level. They could have been more dominant. They could have been more entertaining. They could have scored more goals. I think they they could have been remembered more fondly than what I think in the end they're going to be remembered as a team who didn't need to get our first gear and didn't even try. If you don't love me at my nil-nil against Denmark, you don't deserve me at my 4-3 against Argentina. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? Yeah, but like, you know, even the 4-3, like, I mean, it was an incredibly entertaining game, but you're like, wow, really? This France team, with that incredible defence, with Hugo Lloris having a fantastic tournament, we'll forget about the, uh, the mistake against Mandzukic for now, but for them to concede three goals against this Argentina, you're like, wow, that's, that's, that's poor... I think their most impressive performance from what I saw of them was the the Belgium game where they did seem to control the game a little bit more. They never seemed to be panicked. Belgium, with all their attacking talents, were were pretty much kept at bay by uh, such a resolute defensive performance. But I just feel kind of disappointed with all those 
talents, all that quality at France's disposal, all those incredible players, and let's not forget the second youngest squad in the entire tournament. There is that potential, of course, but I don't feel like we ever saw them fully unleashed. Even Mbappe, who, you know, when you see how frightening he is and, and how incredible he is and what a player he, he can be and is already, it still felt like we didn't see the full potential of him or this team. And I, I kind of find that a bit frustrating almost. Yeah, I, th- I think you almost kind of touched on it there before when you said berating them for what they aren't instead of focusing on what they are. And, and to to use a boxing analogy that I have maybe leaned on in the past, I think Floyd Mayweather suffers a similar criticism, the idea that he's such a defensive boxer. Um, and you kind of even saw that with the McGregor fight. You know, there was a lot of people, and I'm no boxing expert by any means, so apologies if I misspeak, but I did see criticism of the fact he wasn't really engaging or throwing all that much and that he kind of picks his shots and things like that and that someone with his talent and theory should be more aggressive. But I think it's a similar thing with with France. That's the thing. that They've they've really kind of ramped up their, their youth production and industrialised it in in a way that, a lot of, I think, Central European nations have. And Lawrence did a, a really nice little mini dot where he went to see um, the homes of Mbappe, Pogba and Kante to kind of understand like what the talent, where the talent is coming from, but then also kind of how it is made into, and a lot of it is personal drive. And I think this is the thing is that we can certainly talk about the collection of talent they've got, but there's almost a Machiavellian edge to it that if if they win at the end, you know, I think if, if they had fallen to Belgium or they had lost to Croatia or what have you, then you could probably start to pick holes at it. But in that regard, I think from a historical edge, it's, it's written by the victor. And in this instance, I, I don't know if we can really say all that much towards France, because I think if they, like I said before, I think if they get to the Euros and they struggle, then we can say, well, you know, the warning signs are there. That that's the problem. You can only plot the course backwards when it comes to evaluating these things. It's a lot more difficult to look forward and say, well, it'll be terrible at the Euros because there were no good here. They won the competition. That's they made the most of their talent. I think realistically, they'll probably have to to move Mbappe into more of a central role because I think that's where he's doing his best stuff. I'll be kind of curious to see how teams almost treat them now as well, because I think you saw the same with Leicester when they won the Premier League, and granted, France are not the Leicester of international football, but they did a similar kind of thing where they sucked teams in and the arrogance of their opposition, at least in Leicester's case specifically here I'm talking about, meant that they just kept coming on to Leicester and kept opening themselves up to be counted on. I'm curious to see now how teams will approach France knowing that their intention is to give you the ball and to let you almost kind of contort yourself into a position that makes it easy for them to attack. I think how they adapt to that will be an interesting potential challenge for Deschamps. Yeah, I mean, what do you make of Deschamps? And obviously he's he's built this France team in his own image. They're, they're very solid defensively, I should say, and they've sort of built on that platform, built on that foundation. Um, as I said before, you know, one of three men to, to ever win the World Cup as a captain and a manager. The achievement itself is incredible, but it doesn't feel like he's going to go down as you know, an all-time great manager necessarily. He's effective, if not you know, taking the world by storm. Yeah, you know, it's funny when you say that. There's, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm almost trying to formulate the thought in my head. I mean, he obviously won Serie B with, with Juventus. He won Ligue 1 with, with Marseille. I'm talking purely as a manager here. Obviously, he won a ton of things as a player. Like I think he won Serie A three times with, with UV. He won Ligue 1 twice. So he, he certainly achieved things as a manager before this. I just wonder if there's almost, and, and some listeners may be disappointed to hear it, there's almost a kind of Mourinho vibe towards him. Um, in so much as... He's pragmatic, it, like Mourinho. Yeah, incredibly pragmatic to the point where... I'm sure you've probably seen this gif already. Pogba, I don't know who he's talking to, but he seems to uh, mouth someone, you know, like the critics or whoever don't talk anymore. Like I do my talking on the pitch. That's what I understood it to mean as he was saying it. Um, there's almost a similar, that to me is kind of the, the Titus and Mero reference here. That's kind of the rainbow of this French team. You know, we do our talking on the pitch and the same with, with Deschamps. I think, I think that for me is, is, the more interesting thing is that in at a time 
with with international football and and specifically this tournament we've talked about you know Jorge Valdano wrote a really nice little piece that I haven't got all the way through but I've seen bits of about Tiki Taka and, and maybe it needs refinement and Guardiola is the person to do that and we've talked about you know the the identity of so many countries the fact England feels like it has one the fact Germany's needed tweaking and, and Nico's talked about that already and I think done pieces to that effect France's identity feels really simplistic and I think that's almost why it frustrates is because it doesn't feel like there's more pages to that book and there should be. Um, it feels like it should be this, you know, very in-depth kind of, well, they do this and they do that and they make the most of Mbappe in this way when really it's kind of just a pamphlet and the pamphlet reads a little bit like that episode of The Fresh Prince where Will joins the basketball team and there's just a bunch of arrows pointing towards him. Um, it's... But I think... But I was going to say just briefly, I think within that, you look at the pass from Pogba, um, I want to say the third goal maybe. Anyway, he produced a pass with his laces that's right in behind from Bappe. That still takes talent and, and brilliance. So I think there's there's something to be appreciated with that. Kind of, I don't want to contradict myself, but I do. I've got an appreciation for it as, as pragmatic as Deschamps is and as much as there is this sense that perhaps, you know, this is a team with the handbrake on and we're not seeing their full potential, you do have to admire, you know, international football. Of course, tactics come into it. You know, man management, though, is obviously a big aspect. The squad selection is a huge aspect. And I think he did make some some bold decisions, you know, before the tournament, leaving out Anthony Martial and Alexandre Lacazette was was much criticised, but I think, you know, he's, he's been vindicated in that sense. You know, bringing in Lucas Hernandez and Benjamin Pavard, uh, the full-back positions, you know, inexperienced players, but players who proved themselves in this tournament. As much as I think you can raise those question marks as to whether he's got the, the maximum out of this team, he has, he has got the job done. And I think that you need to respect that in a sense. Absolutely, you have to respect that. Um... And that's what that's what kind of what I said before that it, it goes back to the notion that history is written by the victor because in this case France got the job done. That's that's it. You can talk about whether they use the talent to the maximum of their ability, but at the same time, I, th- I think there's part of us maybe that has to stop and think. Well, hang on, we we've always assumed, I would say, post. 2009-2010, let's say the Guardiola era of coaching, that possession equates beauty. And yet, the Arsenal team under Wenger, just around, if not after, the Invincibles, they could be incredibly direct. And when I mean direct, I don't mean long. This is the important distinction. In so much as they could pass through a team in four or five passes. Now, one of the things that Guardiola has always railed against is the idea that Tiki Taka or whatever uh, description you want to apply to it becomes passing for passing sake. That's exactly what it's not meant to be. It's meant to be the most efficient way to go. So you could argue the efficiency of France is really what's the most prevalent aspect here because it does get the job done. It doesn't matter kind of whether it looks beautiful or whatever. It does what it's supposed to do. And and yeah, I think for for that reason alone, it's an interesting time to challenge what we've come to believe. And I think in in the much more kind of macro perspective, that's kind of what football is. Every time we think, you know, we put the last jigsaw piece puzzle, jigsaw puzzle piece in, it turns around and you realise actually there's another bit of the border to do, or there's a little bit of a face missing, or something like that. Um, let's talk about a couple of the players on this on this French team. Um, I think one of the most interesting is, of course, Paul Pogba. I mean, you sort of mentioned it there. He's playing for. A pragmatist, as we say in Didier Deschamps, again for his club football, Jose Mourinho. It's kind of a contradiction in that I feel like we saw the, the full potential of Paul Pogba in that game against Belgium, the way he can be so dominant defensively, the way he can, as in that game, as he did in the final, you know, that, that long sort of ball he sort of rakes through to, to Mbappe. He sort of saw the full range of his skills and the full range of the assets he has. He's won a World Cup now. He's won Serie A titles. You know, he's achieved so much as a player, and he's only 25 years old. You know, his peak is yet to come. You would assume, but is there that sense that you know he needs to play potentially for a different manager to to see his full potential realised 
more regularly, or do you think you know this constant handring and this constant debate over Paul Pogba is is over over exaggerated, and that you know he is the player he is. He's achieving some of the highest honors in the game, and we need to stop this sort of obsession and this focus with his performances week in week out. Yeah, I think. I think that's kind of the problem is that I expect at some point to read a piece that talks about why can't Mourinho ape what Deschamps has done with France and, and, and give him that same platform. The reason is, is that firstly, a cup format doesn't play into a league season where you've got 38 games. Secondly, Man United are never going to be the type of team that gives up possession to any team, I would say, outside of the top six. Um, if anything, I would say the league has split into sort of the us and thems almost, um, which is ironic because I'm part of the thems um, in terms of supporting a team that doesn't have a lot of money. So has to, like I look at the Newcastle Man United game, the Chelsea game, whenever a big team goes away, more and more I think once you get past the top 10 especially, you'll find that the team playing at home will sit deep, will try to shut off space, will try to pick its opportunities and its moments because that's what they feel is the best way to um, to kind of get success. I, th- I think with him in general, he's such a polarising person that you almost just need to remove both the bookends of, of the discussion in so much as I don't think he's sensational yet. I think he's still growing and developing. I also don't think you know he's a complete fraud either. And I think that's the problem is that you look at his numbers for Man United, they were actually really good once you got past kind of the the basics of assists and goals and all this, if you looked at all of his analytics and how they stacked up relative to the likes of De Bruyne and the people that we consider the best in the league, I I think he was completely where he needs to be. Um, And at the same time, the difficulty he had was that he was kind of, I would argue, the icebreaker for the really big transfers. 80, 90 million now does not seem like a crazy set of money. At the time, it was... Yeah, absolutely mind blowing, and I think I think almost it's difficult when you're a moment in time like that because you're held to a standard that maybe isn't that fair. Um, and I think if he was bought now, I don't think people would expect him to be this showreel every single Saturday or Sunday or Monday or whatever. They would almost allow him the context of a full season and well, what did they achieve in this season? And you know, could could he have done more? Or could he have done this? Because I think. You look at the City game, especially at the Etihad, he was fantastic that day. You can't argue any other way. And I think that's that's the problem is that we distill it so much down to moments that we, we have to almost step back, I think, to get the full context of everything. It'd be very interesting to see how he is perceived at Manchester United this season and how he, how he gets on, really, under Mourinho uh, in another year at Old Trafford. Um, elsewhere, I think the defence also deserves a mention. Hugo Lloris, the captain in goal, Samuel Mtiti, Raphael Varane, centre-back. Incredibly solid for the most part, and obviously the platform, as I mentioned earlier, that this team is built on, the foundations of the success. Yeah, I, I mean, Lloris had a bit of a nightmare in the final with with um, yes. Croatia's second. That was I, 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 so good for the rest of the tournament. Made some great saves against Belgium, etc. Mm, yeah, there was one... I th- was it against Uruguay maybe? I know David Priest was raving about it. Um, kind of just his, his foot movement and everything. Um, but yeah, I think Rafa Varane was someone that stuck out for me pretty much, I think, against Belgium in particular. that There was just nothing that was going to fall in the box thanks to him. Um, and I, th- I think he's one of the few players now as well. There's only just over half a dozen, I think, that have won a Champions League and a World Cup in the same season. Um which is, is amazing to think about. And fair play to him. He's one of the, those players that I remember being highly regarded at Lens when he was younger, who has really come to fruition. And and a one, I believe, that Zidane really pushed for. So that's another sort of benefit or, or lasting legacy of, of his is that he got Rafa Varane for what will have been peanuts, especially now, um, and, and given them a mainstay of their defence. I think him and T were, for me, I look at maybe Godin and, and Jimenez, the best centre-back pairing of the tournament. I think Jimenez and Godin were good as well, but I would just give it to Umtiti and Varane um, a, a little bit. That kind of just shared it for me. So, yeah, I, th- I think a team with France's ideology or, or approach was always going to need that strong backline. It was never going to 
do well. And I think that's almost the key takeaway when you say, well, you know, what's changed from Euro 2016 to now? It was the transition of players, essentially. It was getting rid of, with the greatest of respect to them, the likes of Evra, the likes of Koscielny, and putting in the likes of Theo Hernandez, uh, Benjamin Pavard, yeah. uh, Varane, and, and essentially giving the team an injection of fresh youth, um, which I think really powered them to, to the final and ultimately to success. Yeah, and uh, again, yeah, you do have to give Deschamps credit for that. Uh, Varane, 16 titles now at 25 years old. Not bad, not a bad career he's had so far. Um, further forward, His den must be cramped. Yeah, unbelievable. Uh, further forward then, um, some interesting players, of course, Antoine Griezmann, um, the man of the match uh, officially in this game for France. Uh, again, you know, in playing into that overriding sense of this France team, it didn't feel like he, he really realised the, the full extent of his, his potential of this tournament. Is that, is that harsh? Um, I would say a little bit. I think, I think again, he suffers a little bit with with that similar kind of Pogba type um, scenario where if he's not doing highlight reel things or things that sponsors can put in videos, um, then I think he he gets criticised. When I think actually he's a very industrious forward at the same time, which is not something you always associate with players in his position. And I think he he carries the ball well. I think he works. Um, well, with the attackers, with the attackers around, it's a little bit like Giroud in that sense. There was a lot of players who had to be thankless for this France team to work, I think, um, and and that for me is is something I think is true of Gre- Griezmann as well. That you know he scored the penalties, he maybe didn't have those amazing moments from open play that we that we think of, but I think there were there were little things to appreciate about him as well. I mean, you look at the goal against Uruguay, the Varane header. Um, that goal really happens because Griezmann stutters his run-up because what he does in doing that is essentially it just jolts the Uruguayan backline about five yards further back than it wanted to be, which means they've now got the space to put it on Varane's head and score the goal. So it's little sort of nuances like that that I think because it's not an overhead kick, it, it maybe doesn't catch the eye as much, but it, it all builds the pyramid of success, if you will. Yeah, I mean, that obviously plays into Olivier Giroud as well. I, I can't help but feel sorry for I'm I'm kind of torn in that, you know, again, can you criticise a player for, for what, he, what he isn't? You have to look at what he is and, and give him credit for that. I think Giroud, obviously, he, he fulfils quite a specific tactical role in this team with, with Griezmann and, and then Bappe around him. But it's hard not to feel sympathy when... I saw the uh, the video in Paris. The, the team was being projected onto the Arc de Triomphe. Um, incredible scenes there, hundreds of thousands of people cheering um, when the World Cup was won. And each team member is being projected onto the Arc de Triomphe one by one. Their names being called out. Each name is being cheered. Hugo Lloris gets a huge cheer. N'Golo Kante get a massive cheer. Kylian Mbappe, incredible ovation. Um, Giroud's face is projected onto the Arc de Triomphe. And there's booze. And this is after France have won the World Cup, when the fans are celebrating in the streets. Um, so fair to say, not a universally loved figure by French fans, um, which is kind of is a little difficult to understand. I mean, do, do you? Where do you stand on Giroud? Because obviously he didn't score a goal in this tournament. Um, I think I'm correct in saying he still didn't manage a shot on target uh, throughout the entire campaign. Mm. Yeah. Does he do a job? Is he effective? Does he does he do his role and fulfil his role? And that's what, again, as you say, it's thankless, but it enables this team to succeed. Well, there was that video, obviously, of him going out to sign autographs. And yes, how, how can you not feel sorry for him? The, the problem with someone like him, and it's something that Emil Heskey suffered from, actually, for a good period, was that being selfless like that doesn't always get you respect. Because I don't know, it's just the forward position by its definition is is associated with goals, and I think other metrics for success are are, are seen to pale in in comparison. I think, as I said before, the the thing with him is that his role made Griezmann better. It made other players better. It gave them um, an an out ball. I think that's that's the thing. You look at Mandzukic as well. I mean, obviously a lot was made of Kalinic and, and how daft he is and the fact he's missed out on a, a runners-up medal and a chance to play in the final. But you look at both the finalists, 
they had that direct option that if they needed to, they could just bypass midfield, they could do whatever. And I think it's, it's, it's really difficult sometimes, I think, for people to understand that in tournament football, you can't have 23 stars be that in terms of how good they are as players or the roles that they have to play. Sometimes you have to accept that, you know, your your position in the squad, your position in the team even, is to facilitate others, to make runs that, that others will benefit from. I think that's something that we talked about and wax lyrical about with Belgium's third goal against Japan, that Lukaku doesn't touch the ball, but he influences the play massively because his run opens up the space for De Bruyne to find the pass and then his dummy allows Chadley to score. It's these things that maybe aren't measurable all the time by by you know statistical uh, means, but play, play a role, but play an influence. And I think that's the thing. If you talk to any of his teammates, I'd imagine they'd be full of praise for him and full of appreciation for what he does, even if it's not the most entertaining or it's not something that that maybe will always catch the eye. Um, somebody did catch the eye, though. Uh, Kylian Mbappe, um, of course, only the second teenager to score in a World Cup final after Pele, just 19 years old, a World Cup winner, uh, the best young player in the tournament, officially, uh, as awarded by FIFA. Um, an incredibly exciting player to watch, Chris, and it's kind of, it's nice to see a player without cynicism, you know, how we, we judge, say, Messi and Ronaldo now, oh, they've never won a World Cup, this guy's won the World Cup at 19, and it's just exciting to to, to look forward to how this guy is going to develop and how good he's going to get. Yeah, the, the poor guy, I mean, he's not even finished taking off his medal, and people are talking about the fact that explosive players like him tend to peter out a little bit as they they kind of hit their mid-20s. You look at like Torres, I mean, I think his was a little bit later, but, you know, players that start young and have that speed, Michael Owen's probably the greatest example, but I think there's more to him than than just speed, personally. I think his his technique, that was something that actually I noticed um, in helping Lawrence with, with that documentary stuff, just doing a bit of research for him, was just how similar Mbappe was as a kid in the way that he plays now. Like, it sounds so weird, but you could blur his face out and you could still tell that it's Mbappe, if that makes sense, because the technique's the same, like the way he throws his arm up when he fakes and all this kind of stuff. It's really quite funny to watch. But I think from from him as a player, you look at him and Kante, in truth, the, the meteoric rise, which is a term that gets thrown around so easily in football these days, is impossible to deny. I mean, Kante for a second... You go back to the last World Cup in 2014, every member of that squad, apart from Kante, had at least some affiliation with the French national team, be it a youth cap, a senior cap, whatever. He had nothing. He was a, a midfielder at Cannes. They were about to finish, I think, 12th or 13th in Ligue 1, and he had really not achieved anything. And, and I don't mean that in a critical way. By now, he's won two Premier League titles. He's a World Cup winner. There's talk he could go back to PSG um, in a big deal if he stays... I mean, I don't know if he will stay. I think it's going to be difficult because I think at this point, every club wants a Kante. Um, and that's the difficulty with him is that he's such a unique prospect in the same way that Mbappe is such a, a unique prospect because he's speed, but he's technique. And, and the other thing that I think we picked up on with this tournament was his intelligence of movement. And that was something that almost seemed to really highlight what Pogba can do with the ball is that, Mbappe running into these dangerous spots and dangerous positions like he did against Uruguay a couple of times meant that Pogba could use his range of passing to find him. And it's it, it almost kind of dovetails just back into that bit about Giroud again where it's how everyone interacts with each other. That's something, you know, if you play football manager and things like this to sound like a nerd for a second, you will appreciate that X and why they have to work with each other to make the end product. And it's the same with, with Mbappe. He is great on his own. I think you could put him almost in any team and he's going to do well. But a lot of it is down to how the other pieces around him in this French national team work. And I think you look at just that spine for a second. Kante frees up Pogba to do what Pogba does best, who in turn frees Mbappe to do what Mbappe does best. And, and there's a beautiful sort of synergy in that. Finally, before we move on to to some, some end of tournament awards, team of the tournament, all that good stuff. We do have to, to give a word on Croatia, who have been fantastic, I think it's fair to say, in this tournament. Obviously in the knockout stages coming through three very difficult games that went to extra time. I think 
you know, as painful as it is to admit that they deserve to come through against England, they were the better team on the balance of play. And then coming into this final, for periods, they were the dominant team and they, they did at times play the better football. Um, they did fall short in the end, though. Uh, was it fatigue, Christian? Was it a, a lack of quality in the final third? What was it that sort of made them fall short for you in what was, at the end of the day, a, a very comprehensive performance despite the defeat? Um, <laughs> the cynical Englishman says their arrogance is what cost them. Um, no, it, it clearly was. I do think the fact that they essentially played what is an extra game when you add up all the extra time played a part. It had to because as the game kind of stretched itself out and Croatia had to commit more, it was much more of a physical exertion. And I, and I think that's going to tell. You even look at Subasic, who I think didn't look 100% fit. And I think that was the problem is that Croatia are an amazing story in the sense that we've talked about on the pod already. There's no great reason why they're this good. They've just got very good players. Granted, the pool is not nearly as deep as say France or Germany or Italy or Spain or whatever, but it's talented. And I think at the same time, that was kind of the problem was that the game over on, they didn't really have any game changing options. I mean, Kalinic could have been one, but I don't think he'd have been sensational if I'm very honest. Um, and I think that was the difficulty is that for early periods, you could argue the whole 90, they dominated the ball. And I think they found ways to get in, in, in at France. In fact, I think the French defence did not look as stern as it had in the two games prior against Belgium and, and Uruguay. But at the same time, it just felt like there was something a little bit lacking. I know people will point to the refereeing decisions, but I just think that's way too easy. I think actually for what it was worth, Croatia just never seemed to kind of get both hands wrapped around the situation. Do you know what I mean? There was there was just that little bit of 5% missing, I think, from from what they were trying to do. As much as they, they had the ball, I didn't think they were always able to use it in, in the best way. Uh, finally, a word on Luka Modric then. Um, awarded the Golden Ball Player of the Tournament. Well-deserved, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, I think I think he's a wonderful footballer. Um, I wrote something, cranky, when was it? Maybe last year, the year before, about kind of his evolution from being voted one of the worst signings in, in La Liga to, to where he is now. He's Essentially, he's the kind of player that England need to produce. And, and I was just reading something from Gareth Southgate in 2011 to The Guardian that talked to that effect that they needed to produce more players, not of Modric's uh, ilk, but more players that were, were technical and this kind of thing. And, and yeah, his ability to control a game, I think actually even just to control space, um, his understanding of the space around him and things like that, that's something I just really appreciate in players because it, it's such an underrated skill to be able to manipulate your opponent just by moving your body or, or what you do without actually touching the ball. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Right, let's do some, some World Cup awards then and a team of the tournament. I mean, first off, we spoke about Modric there. Player of the tournament for us, Luka Modric. Is there anyone else who, who's in with a shout? Mbappe, etc. Should we settle on Modric for that one? Yeah, Modric, I think, wins yeah, that I one. Yeah, that's fair. Um, what about goal of the tournament for you 
Um, there, there's there's many to choose from. There's some some <laughs> bloody good goals. Uh, we had uh, Lionel Messi's goal against Nigeria. Um, Benega's assist away. Messi took that down on his knee. One, two, three touches in the back of the net. Um, we also had Benjamin Pavard's goal mm-hmm. uh, against uh, Argentina as well. That Nacho as well probably deserves a similar shot. Nacho. Uh, we had Ricardo Caresma's outside the boot worldie. Oh, yeah. Cristiano Ronaldo's free kick. The equaliser in that free all game against Spain. I mean, for me personally, I'm going with Benjamin Pavard. The way he struck that ball, the replay from that very particular angle where you see the incredible amount of spin he puts on it and the way it just beautifully floats into that top corner. For me, that was just mm-hmm. such a pleasing sight that I could watch on replay again and again and again. Uh, more than any other goal, for me, is Pavard. Where are, you, where are you going? It's a good question. I heard Pavard scream, Bolt, what does he hit? Um, I mean, I don't blame it. I'm trying. The goal that jumped my head was the Belgian winner against Japan. I love oh. Karezmas as well. Um, I'm trying to think of that goal that just got me kind of up off my seat. Um, Messi's was pretty close. The old Yeah, and I love the fact that Messi's was too... The two childhood kind of rivals, they used to play against each other in Rosario. Um, uh, I'm going to agree with you. Go on, I'll go for Pavard because you don't really expect that from a right back. Unbelievable. Um, what about the game of the tournament? So there was some, there was some humdingers in, the, in this tournament, of course, as we said. You've got France 4, Argentina 3. You've got Spain 3, Portugal 3. You've got Belgium against Japan 3-2. You've got the final itself, which was 4-2. I mean, some absolutely cracking games in this tournament. For me, I think for just pure entertainment value, it had to be France-Argentina. The the way that game was just twisting on each moment and it looked like France were going to absolutely blow Argentina away and yet somehow they came back to Di Maria, scored an absolute worldie, which didn't even mention in the in the, in the goal of the tournament, Gosh, to bring yeah. them back into it. And then Mbappe wins a penalty. It was just a, an end-to-end game, incredibly entertaining, thrilling um, and that was the game, I think, where Mbappe really started to to sort of take the spotlight of this tournament as well. So for me, it's France Argentina. Any shouts for you, Chris? Uh, I mean, obviously Spain Portugal was. Just, I think that was the game earlier on in the tournament where everyone sort of sat up and went, "Hang on, this is this is the best World Cup ever. This is incredible." Is it bad to pick England Colombia just because of its significance on a personal level? No, I think it's fair to say that. I think as a as a neutral, I think it's got to be Belgium Japan just because of how ridiculous oh, it was. So good, and the way it ended that last yeah. minute winner. Um, yeah, I think on a personal level, you could say that England game when Dyer scored that penalty, I, I, I sort of lost my mind a little bit. My fiance turned around to me and said, "That's the happiest I've ever seen you in your entire life." It was quite, uh, <laughs> it was quite cathartic. I think it's fair to say. And then you grabbed uh, her by the hand and said, "Let's <laughs> change that." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wish I had that. It'd been pretty, pretty good actually. Um, no, I think it's got to be for me. It's France, Argentina, but I, I can concede. Eric Dyer scoring that penalty, Colombia finally going through on World Cup penalties was um, was pretty incredible from a from a sort of bias point of view. So I'll give you that. Um, what about the biggest disappointment for you? Um, obviously, a couple of big teams who who failed to really live up to their expectations. Germany, of course, failing to even get out of the group stages. Brazil, um, I don't think really showed what they can do, being knocked out by Belgium in the quarterfinals. For me, I think the biggest disappointment was Brazil, personally. Um, I, I think from that first game, that, that first performance that Germany put in, I think we knew that they weren't quite going to be at that level in this tournament. Whereas Brazil, I was sort of expecting them to grow as the tournament went on, to, to grow more confident and and become a more complete team in a sense and, and put in more complete performances. But they just didn't really, perhaps they were a little bit unlucky, but they didn't really turn up against Belgium, it felt like. So for me, that was the biggest disappointment. Brazil, Neymar, etc. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with that. I, I think, I don't know, maybe my childhood kind of coloured my perception of Brazil a bit in terms of, I just wasn't always, feel, I didn't always feel like they had that same kind of, flair to them um i think tt did it did a wise thing in sort of making them more functional and more defensively sound but at the same time i think what was lost and that was was disappointing um argentina as well i, I just think 
you know, we talk about, you know, can Messi lift Argentina, can Ronaldo lift Portugal? We do sometimes reduce it to um, talismanic perceptions. And I, and I just think, you know what, when he does retire properly from the national team, because obviously it was, I think, two years ago, in two years ago last month that he retired after Copa America, he's going to look back and think, I never had a platform to succeed with that lot because the federation's been a mess for years. And and the national team was, was largely the same, unfortunately. And I feel sorry for him because I think he kind of, as much as we talk about Maradona in 86 and doing it himself, there's so many other strands you can pick apart from that. I just, I just feel a bit sorry for him that he never yeah. got that, that really great platform. I, I completely agree. I think when you saw uh, the way Argentina conceded that opener against Croatia, where Caballero basically put on an absolute plate uh, for Rebic, I just thought, you know, what, what can you really expect Messi to do here? How can you really expect him to, to do a Maradona and lead this team to World Cup glory? It's impossible. So, uh, yeah, completely see where you're coming from there. Um, finally, I mean, we've talked about flops, talked about the best players. Potentially um, unsung heroes. I mean, the, the players who potentially didn't get the credit they fully deserved. I mean, we've mentioned Olivier Giroud for France, Blaise Matuidi as well. I think is someone who perhaps doesn't always get the credit he deserves and was a key part of that French side. Was there any players for you who sort of flew under the radar a little bit in this tournament and yet put in performances that were worthy of, of adulation? Um... I mean, I didn't expect Harry Maguire to stand out as much as he did. Um, what a bloody player. Unbelievable. Yeah, Bro- Brozovic. I, again, Brozovic, I had seen him linked with a lot of moves. I thought he... I was going to say Perisic as well. I know, obviously, Modric and Rakitic, that midfield, got a lot of the plaudits for Croatia, but Perisic was fantastic mm-hmm. in this tournament. I think he, he showed on international stage why um, you know he, he garners so much attention every transfer with yeah, exactly. I, th- I think um, I, th- I think that's the funny thing about World Cups. It used to be such a, a platform for for transfers and moves. I always think back to USA '94 and guys like Mark Hotiger and um, there was a Tottenham player, Romanian player, whose name escapes me, um, who got a move off off the back of it. Granted, Aussie yeah, dealers have, yeah. have since said that like they scouted him for much longer. But yeah. um, Rory Smith wrote a nice piece actually saying that scouts don't go to World Cups anymore. It's just it's way too uh, unstable a, a platform of evaluation. But yeah, I, th- I think there's certainly some players who I think will, will benefit in some way from that tournament who maybe weren't as, as heralded before it. Like, Irving Lozano probably is, is actually probably the best shout um, for a player that I think will, will get a big move off the back of this. Uh, let's do, uh, to finish, our team of the tournament then. Um, we'll go through and sort of pick our best 11 in goal. Um, a couple of, of the potential choices. Hugo Lloris, of course, the captain who lifted the World Cup we've spoken about already. Uh, Subasic for Croatia. I think, as you sort of alluded to earlier, there was that sense that perhaps he was injured after the, uh, after the quarterfinals, the way he didn't really go for Kieran Trippier's free kick in the opening of, of, of the semi-final against England, the way he couldn't get down for the some of the shots uh, against France, some of the goals. But the performances beforehand put him in contention. Uh, Thibaut Courtois as well, the official sort of Golden Glove winner of the tournament. Um, Jordan Pickford, you could potentially put him with a shout there. I don't think we're ever going to forget that that penalty save in the shootout against Colombia. For you, though, who, field's finest. <laughs> yeah, who potentially for you was the, the, the goalkeeper of the tournament? Who deserves to be in between the sticks? Um... I've got a slight affinity with Pickford because I don't know if you got that, that Fatfield reference, but it's a part of Washington where I grew up and he grew up as well. Granted, I wasn't there nearly as long as he was. Um, <sighs> Big fan of him as well, telling people to to shut the fuck up very clearly. Yeah, he, he's, he's pure one hundred percent Raj Mackham. I love it. He hasn't changed a bit. Passion. Yeah. Um, uh, we can't put him in though. Surely over. Hugh yeah, we give it to Courtois, even okay. though he's too tall. We'll give, we'll give it to Courtois, uh, despite the fact he slagged off uh, Jordan Pickford midfield through the tournament. Um, what about uh, centre back? I think Rafael Varane is an absolute must. We've already discussed. Alongside him, could we put in the likes of maybe Diego Cardin, maybe Yeri Mina, of course, who was so dangerous um, from set pieces uh, in attack, but also so solid at the back. If, 
Who who could we potentially go for alongside? We could play three at the back, to be honest. We could put Harry Maguire in there. Yeah, the Colombian Air Force that is Yerry Mina sounds tempting. Um, Vida as well. As terrible as his haircut is, <laughs> he's, he's a great player. Yeah, and the fact he's not a centre back by trade either. Um, to to quote Dave, um, but I, I think I think a back three sounds like a good idea because I feel like that was possibly um, a good idea. And I really like Godin actually because he just feels so Sunday league. It sounds so bizarre to say of an international defender, and I don't mean that at all to detract from his ability because no, from an ability standpoint, he is world class. Um, and I think. You, pretty much any of the top teams in Europe could buy him and, and their defence would improve. So yeah, I think him, uh, Varane, and yeah, let's let's chuck let's chuck our boy Harry Maguire in there because he he was a major threat from set pieces. And I think if you say what you want about England and open play, but from set pieces they were I would say the most devastating team. They were indeed. Uh, right back, obviously we've got potentially Kieran Trippier, um, who whose performances earned him the freedom of the city of Bury. Apparently, something uh, involving after. <laughs> yeah, what an honour. Uh, you've also got uh, Schalke, who um, was, I think, incredible in this tournament, despite the fact he he seemed to be completely crocked after the quarterfinals, managed to battle through the entirety of the semi final and the final. It was a very impressive player. Um, you've potentially got uh, Pavard as well, as we said, um, the, the 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 goal scorer of the tournament, that fantastic finish. Who for you potentially deserves to? to start as our as our right wing back? Well, this is a difficult one because Trippier is the most creative right back of the tournament. I think, in fact, I think I read that no one had created more chances from open play or something mad like that. But then, as you said, Pavard, I thought, well, yeah, you've probably got to give it to him because he scored that goal. I think defensively, I, I didn't see him have a bad game defensively. There was no point where I thought... I thought Hazard had him on toast in that game against Belgium. You know, As good as Pavard was, I thought there were moments where his inexperience and perhaps his his, his weakness showed. Whereas someone like Trippier for Schalke, I felt like they were less exposed. There was less of that in the tournament. Then I will defer to your superior wisdom. Oh, okay. Uh, as much as I'm tempted to go for Kieran Trippier uh, for all the the virtues you extolled there, I think for me it's got to be for Schalke. Um, the Croatian press nicknamed, nicknamed him Escobar. I like that. So we'll go with uh, with old Escobar. <laughs> Simeone Vrchalko is our uh, is our right wing back. Um, what about on the left? Obviously, Lucas Hernandez, um, very impressive for France. Um, Yuri Zhirkov from Russia as well was pretty good in that in that position. Um, you've got Ashley Young for England, but essentially not quite in the conversation. Is there anything else we can throw in there? Um, for, uh, Diego Laxalt of, of Uruguay um, is probably someone you can mention. I think going into this tournament, he did not have a, a huge reputation. Um, I still think he has limitations. I think if anyone's likely to benefit from this World Cup in the way we talked about before, it's probably Laxal. Um But yeah, I think you can throw him in there because he was a good two-way player um, at wing-back. Th- Tio Hernandez is a curious one. I wasn't blown away by him, actually. I think he was quite, not fortunate, but I think he benefited from the fact that essentially he had Madridi as a shadow, um, especially in the final. He was was much wider than he had been against Belgium, Matuidi, because he was a lot more narrow um, after looking at the, the pass laps and everything. So, yeah, I, th- I think I think you could maybe say Hernandez. Who, who was the other suggestions you had? Um, that was it, really. I can't, I can't maybe, honestly... Maybe Laxal. I think give it Laxal just to mix it up, I think, because he, oh, he, was, he was good and I don't think a lot was expected of him. Midfielders, this is tough. We've got to get a balance here if we're going to go with free midfield. I think Luka Modric has to be in there. Um, Kevin De Bruyne, potentially. Uh, who else could we sort of chuck in the mix here? We're talking potentially Kante, despite his performance in the final. Um, who else? Uh, Pogba, potentially, as well. Which three do we want to kind of partner up together here, along with, with Modric, potentially. Yeah, I was going to say Modric has to be there. Um, I mean, Kante didn't have a great final. I think that's fair to say. He gave away more fouls than, than any other game. Um, I think he'd only given away eight fouls 
up until the final, and he gave away three in the final. Yeah, he was he was almost um, perfect up until the final, and then he just sort of who knows what happened there. Yeah, um, but he's a lovely lad, bless him. Um, so Modric, I almost feel like in terms of balance, you almost want Kante to sit behind, and then it's basically boils down to De Bruyne or Pogba. Um, Maybe De Bruyne find a Belgian player. Got a few French players, yeah. there. I'm sure we're going to have Mbappe up front too. Yeah, I think I think De Bruyne. I think I forget the game. It might have been Panama, um, where he just popped himself in the half space and and flicked it in with the outside of his boot to, to Lukaku. Said it was just that. I thought, yeah, that's that's so Kevin De Bruyne, and it's so blooming brilliant as well. He's just I, I really love De Bruyne. The, the role he plays for City under Guardiola is. It's so perfect for him, and I kind of wish that Martinez had the nous about him to to recreate that. Uh, yeah. Okay, so we're going to go Kante, Kante, Modric, De Bruyne, not Fellaini. If only Dave was here to make the case. Uh, not Hazard <laughs> instead of De Bruyne. No, no. Okay. I, I think yeah, I think Hazard's had a bit of a. No, I've not been blown away by Hazard in this one. Okay. We'll go for Mbappe up front. I think that's that's unarguable. But alongside mm-hmm. it, do we do we put in the Golden Boot winner, Mr. Harry Kane? Do we put in someone like Romelu Lukaku? Could we potentially crowbar in anyone else? Olivier Giroud, even though he didn't even score a goal. Uh, it feels like maybe Kane, Lukaku are the are the obvious picks. Yeah, they are. I think Kane because he got the Golden Boot. The problem is he looks spent after Colombia. Um, it just, yeah, it just didn't, didn't look the same. I, I think, I think a Kane at one hundred percent scores that goal that Subasic tips onto the post with his foot. Um, oh God, what a save! And just the I chances in general. On Saturday, that was a save. I can believe that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's an unreal save. And then also, I look at the Belgium game. There was that chance that Sterling laid off to him, um, and a few where he just. I don't know, he just didn't look himself. Do you know what I mean? You're a Spurs fan, so you've seen a lot more of him than I have, but it was yeah. just, I just felt as if there was a little bit of rhythm missing, you know, when, you know, like maybe when you try and play hungover or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I, I definitely think fatigue became an issue as the tournament wore on. And I think when we've seen Harry Kane in some of the tournaments, the exertions of the season before and, and how central he is for Spurs clearly has a toll. I do think, as well as, as much as I admire, Gareth Southgate, as much as I enjoy the England team, I don't think they're necessarily playing to Harry Kane's strengths, which I think is um, is a potential question mark and a potential area for for thought for Southgate how to to perhaps base it more around getting the most out of Harry Kane instead of I think Sterling was more of a focus in terms of how to to exploit the defensives with with his pace and his movement. Potentially, it could have been more centered on Harry Kane, who I think, when it is, as we see at Spurs, you know, he is more, he is more effective. But getting sidetracked, that is our team of the tournament. We are going for Courtois in goal at the back. We've got a back three of Raphael Varane, Diego Godin, and alongside them, we put Harry Maguire, old slabhead himself. Uh, Simeone Vrishalko is our right wing back. I believe at left wing back we went for who's the Uruguay guy? Diego Laxalt. Diego Laxalt in midfield. We've got Kante, Modric, and De Bruyne are up front. Kylian Mbappe and Harry Kane. Um, that was harder than I thought it was going to be. To be honest, I think there was a lot of a lot of good players in this tournament. Um, guys, let us know what you think at the front three of our teams, um, and let us know your teams. Who did we get wrong? Who did we get right? Who did we miss out? Let us know on Twitter. Um, before we go, I mean, we sort of mentioned it earlier. Best World Cup ever. Best World Cup in our lifetime. Um, do you think this potentially... I don't want to say it could be the, the the last great World Cup, but we're facing changes coming. The next time this tournament rolls around, it's going to be in 2022. Um, it's going to be in December. Uh, I think that's going to be a, a big change for the World Cup. After that, our next World Cup in 2026 is going to expand to 48 teams, um, which I think could potentially be a, a huge cataclysmic mistake for this tournament. Um, I, I'm reluctant to say it. I don't want to be pessimistic. I want to be optimistic. I want to be positive. But I do wonder whether it 
the World Cup may not live up to this entertainment value again. Um, yeah, I see what you mean by that. I think, yeah, I must confess I'm not overly excited by the, the potential changes. Obviously, some of them are climate-related, um, which is why we're playing in December. Others are, I think, an engineered way to give the, the competition more inclusivity almost and I think to give lesser nations a chance I, I just worry because I think you know we we had that debate about you know Panama and Saudi Arabia and these and like the validity of their inclusion if you expand it to 48 that's only going to make things worse in theory um, and I think where it stands right now that 32 sort of team competition I think it's enough of a meritocracy to to be where it is now granted this is not the first time that the world cup has been revised or evolved whichever word you want to apply but i think at the same time i, I for the first time i think in my life i'm uh, i'm feeling a little bit like an old man because there's this part of me just doesn't really want it to change i don't see the benefit of it hmm. i think there's a uh, there's a very interesting article by Rory Smith, who's a fantastic journalist today in the in New York Times on this very topic, talking about some of the trends that we've been discussing in this podcast as well, about what he would say is the rise of collectivism, of the, the decline of how powerful the stars can be and, and how they can sort of determine the destiny of their size. So we'll link to that in the description of this very podcast. But we'll leave it there, guys. Thank you so much for listening throughout the World Cup. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed the podcast. We're still going to take a little break now until the season rolls back around, at least until deadline day in a month or so. We'll come back with the, the old podcast when there's big transfer news or when there's big happenings that we just have to discuss. But we thank you for now for joining us. We're going to be back uh, bigger and better than ever in the new season. But until then, thank you so much for listening. Do leave a review of the front free on iTunes. Click in the description of the podcast and let us know what you thought of it all on Twitter at the front free. We'll see you very soon. But until then, Chris, where can the listeners find you? They can find me at K Hennage or at the front three. Guys, you can find me on Twitter at Adam Boltwood. Until we see you next, enjoy your song. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.